sacrifices on the high places. So on every hill where there was a spreading tree, they used to erect little effigies and little altars to the pagan gods. And Ahaz said, let us all worship on the high places. Let's worship these pagan gods. He made little statues out of cast iron. And he bowed down and he worshipped the Baals of the pagan nations. And he worshipped the starry host. He made gods of the star patterns and the star signs. Again, tell me when that starts to resonate with you a little bit in our day and age. Christians who consult their horoscopes, go along to spirit readings and things of that nature. Guys, watch out. These practices are still alive and well. But the church gets involved and the Christians get involved and it will bring us down, not to our knees in worship, but to our knees in despair, to our knees in separation from God. He worshipped and caused the people to worship the bronze snake that Moses erected in the wilderness. Remember the story? The people were being bitten by serpents, so God instructed Moses, erect a bronze serpent on a pole. And when they look to the one who is symbolized, the one who takes your pain, takes the curse, takes your sin, then you shall surely be healed. And they started to worship it instead of God under Ahaz. The practice is still alive and well in much of the church of our day. I've seen with these own eyes and experienced it in in different churches where I've preached or worshipped. Or I'll give you some examples. I remember leading the children's worship in a service in a particular church, and I made the grave mistake of leaning my guitar against the altar rail. Woo! The priest nipped me. You can't do that. This is a holy thing. They were making an idol out of the very altar and the rail and the communion that took place behind it. I've seen crosses hanging in churches with little dying Jesuses on them. Jesus is not hanging on a cross. He is alive. He has risen. It's idolatrous to even contemplate that. I've been in a church where they've walked in procession with a cushion with a Bible on it. Bible, the very written word of God, being bowed down to, and that's what they did. All the officials went, <laughs> it's alive and well. And Ahaz was doing this to the people of Israel in his day. He takes himself off to Damascus because he had made a treaty with the king of Assyria, and he goes off to that part of the world. He goes to Damascus, and he sees a lovely, big, ornate altar. So he comes back, and he says to his workmen, take the brazen altar of sacrifice, where the atonement for the sins of the people of Israel was made every year, take it and put it around the back, and build me a nice, big one, like I saw in Damascus. He took the other one around the back, and he used it for divination. You know, splitting chickens open and looking to see where their innards were saying? And their intestines were lying in a certain way. You'd say, oh, this is what the gods are saying to him. This was the king of Israel, the king of Judah, doing this. He stripped the temple of all its gold, and he gave it to the king of Assyria to make a pact with him for protection. 
And then, when the king of Assyria started to send his envoys and, and some important people to Jerusalem, he changed the whole layout of the temple to suit them. He wanted to make the temple acceptable to the pagans. Again, stop me when this resonates with you. In today's age, we call it seeker sensitivity. Let's make the church a place where the pagan can feel at home. That's not what the church is. We are supposed to be going into the world to reach the unsaved and bring them into the worshipping, spirit-filled, wonderful family of God to worship the living God, not to accommodate those who don't even know Him. This was happening in Ahaz's day. Eventually, this led to the ultimate. He stripped the temple of all its trappings, its showbread, its incense altar, its Ark of the Covenant. He put them all into storage and he closed the doors of the temple and he erected instead little idolatrous altars on every street corner in Jerusalem. And the great God of Israel, Yahweh, was now just one of the many gods that the very people of God were now bowing down to. That's where Ahaz took the Old Testament equivalent of the church. You know, you've got to ask a question. How on earth did his son Hezekiah turn out to be a good king? I'll tell you why. And this links with last Sunday. Because his mother was the daughter of the great prophet Zechariah. And she taught him the ways of God. So when he became king, he knew the way of God. He knew the Savior of Israel. He knew Yahweh, Almighty God. Enough about Ahaz. I tell you all that bad stuff simply so I can tell you the story of his wonderful son. His wonderful son, Hezekiah. He became king at the age of 25. This is about the year 730 BC. So it is, you know, 700 years or so before Jesus comes. This king reigns. The first thing he did was he set about reversing everything that his father had done. He wasn't just trying to one-up his father. He, wanted, he knew he had to reverse that. He had to reform his nation. He had to bring his nation back from its corruption and degradation. First thing he did is he went up and he removed all the pagan altars from the high places. And he smashed the sacred stones. And he broke the idols into pieces. And he abolished the worship on the high places. He took that bronze serpent which Moses had made, which had turned into an idol. They had actually started calling it by a name, Nehushkan, which means bronze idol. But it also means, in its other pronunciation, despicable and despised one. And he took it and he smashed it into pieces. He repaired the doors of the temple. And he opened the temple again. He said, this place shall be a house of prayer. This place shall be the household of God again. He calls together the Levites, who had been out of operation for years. They hadn't performed any, anything in the temple at all. The temple had been closed. And he got them and he, he built them into teams and he said... Set about consecrating this temple. And it took them 16 days. They went through that temple. They swept it clean. They brought all the stuff back from storage. They repaired all the walls. They couldn't repair the gold. that was gone. But they cleaned it up and they restored it. And they brought it back. 
to what it should be. So the very first thing that he did was he immediately and effectively turned away from the wrong. That's the first step in repentance. That applies in our lives as well. If we find in our church or in our, our private life we have moved away, we have put undue focus on idols and the things that are not of God, the first thing we must do is stop it. Stop it. We have to turn away from that and say no more of this. This temple shall be open to the Lord Most High. And we turn our faces then to God. The next thing he did is he announced that he was going to break the covenant with Assyria and he was going to make a covenant with God. I don't need to take my strength or the strength of my nation from another king. We will bow before the Lord our God. He shall be our shelter and our strong right arm. And he told the people, he announced it, we are going to make a national declaration of our covenant with Yahweh, the God of Israel. He called all his officials together where? In the temple. And he restored the sacrificial system. Now the sacrificial system seems so barbarous to us in our day. But what it was was a powerful visual thing where the people were saying, we bow down before God and the blood of these animals stands as a substitute for our blood, for our sin, for our evil. So it was really important in the Old Testament covenant that these things be restored and be practiced by Israel once again. He restored the music worship. You know, we think of the temple often as this austere place. No, no, it wasn't, you know. Part of the Levites' job was they were musicians as well as priests. So they would play and they would play stringed instruments. Yes. I don't think they had guitars, but very close. I'm quite happy to say guitars. And cymbals and drums and all sorts of stuff and hops and lyres. And they sung and they praised God. And he restored that. So the temple started to become a place of prayer and of song. Of worship. Of joy. Of sacrifice. Of meeting with God. Then he called all the tribes of Israel and Judah. He sent out emissaries to the corners of his empire. And he said, we are going to celebrate Passover again. They hadn't celebrated the Feast of Israel for years and years and years under King Ahaz. So he sent out his, em his emissaries and said, Come, the Passover is upon us. Come to Jerusalem. Some didn't. But a massive crowd responded and came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. <laughs> you know what they did when they swarmed into Jerusalem? They destroyed Every little idol they found on their way. As they came into Jerusalem and saw all these idolatrous things still on street corners and the remnant of, of, of the altars and so on, they just kicked them down. So the crowd coming back for Passover purified the whole city. Then for seven days they celebrated Passover with feasting and rejoicing and with song and with worship. It was so good and there was so much joy that the people said to Hezekiah, can't we continue to do this? And I go, this is like revival times. Because the king said, absolutely, and they did it for another seven days. So a seven-day feast of Passover became a 14-day feast for that particular occasion. And then, most significantly, 
They all went back to their hometowns, obviously. And as they went, every place they went to where they found an altar, they kicked it down. And they broke the idols. And when they got back to their hometown, they went through that town like a broom sweeping it out and they destroyed the idolatrous things in their nation. The nation became purified just as the temple had been purified. 2 Chronicles 30 verses 26 to 27 says this. There was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. This was an Old Testament day of Pentecost, the equivalent. This was an Old Testament revival of national proportions, where not just the temple was, was revived and restored, but the nation became a people of praise and worship and the word of God once again. So let's hit pause button just briefly. What can we learn from these many, many things that happened so far? The first is repenting, as I mentioned earlier. If, if we find that we are slipping at all down that slippery path of focusing on the things of this world and not the things of God, stop it. Turn away from it. And then the second step, turn to God. Restore the covenant with God. Go down on our knees and say, Lord, we, we're sorry we commit and dedicate our lives again to you. You again will be the Lord of my life. I'm so sorry that I've had my eyes fixed on other things. I see it, Lord, and I see you. And then we adopt once again his models and his principles and his values. We put aside empty ritual, an empty sacrament, an empty ceremony, and replace it with heartfelt worship and appreciation of the Word of God and a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. If it be in our power to do so, we reform what needs to be reformed. If there's any area of our church life which needs to be reformed, we lend a hand to reform it back to God's pattern. There's something wrong in our family that needs to be reformed. We reform it. We put his models and his practices and his great blueprint back into operation. And then we cry out to him for revival. We can restore. We can repent. We can reform. But we cannot revive ourselves. For that is a sovereign act of God. We take it as far as we can and then we fall on our knees and say, Oh God, as in days of old, Oh, we've heard of your fame. Restore them in our day, O oh Lord. And we ask him for a Jesus revival. A revival that will center ourselves again back on one and one alone. God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, revivals have a miraculous element to them as well. And that's exactly what happened in this revival under Hezekiah. You see, when he renewed his covenant with God, as I mentioned, he broke the covenant with Assyria. And he sort of pallied up a little bit to the Egyptians. He had some trade arrangements with the Egyptians and so on. And he got a word from the Egyptians, watch out, the king of Assyria is as mad as a snake. 
and he has marshaled his great army and he is marching on Jerusalem even as we speak. And he's coming with hundreds of thousands and he's going to make slaves out of every last one of you. What do you think Hezekiah did when he heard that? He gathered his officials together, plus Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, was part of his household. And he gathered them together in the temple to pray. And they went down on their knees and they said, Lord, you've heard what's happening. But our covenant is with you. You are our strength. You are our shield. And as they were praying, the great prophet Hezekiah, prophet Isaiah, proclaimed prophetically. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, I will put a hook in the mouth of the king of Assyria and draw him by his nostrils. It's quite a... Quite descriptive, right? And I'll draw him back to his capital. And he will leave you. And when he goes back, he will be assassinated. That's a pretty bold prophecy. Isaiah proclaims this prophetically. That very night, in the camp of Assyria that was camped some way away from Jerusalem still, 185,000 men dropped dead. Bang. It's no description of how it happened. just says, and an angel of the Lord went into the camp. We don't know what happened, but 185,000 were dead. In the morning, the king of Assyria walks out of his tent and he sees what's happened and he says, okay, obviously the gods are not with us. Come, we're going home. And he sounds the retreat and he marches his great army back to his capital. The day after he gets back to Assyria... He goes to one of his many pagan temples to worship his gods. And as he's doing that, his officials come in and assassinate him. And the word that is proclaimed through Isaiah the prophet was fulfilled to its absolute meticulous detail. Exactly as God had spoken it. Prayer, power, and proclamation. The very ingredients of revival are manifest in what was happening. In this great king's day. Years later. At the age of 39. Hezekiah became ill to the point of death. Again we don't know what it is. But there's a a fascinating clue. Which comes a bit later. He had a boil. Apparently under his armpit. Glancing across to the medical people. The clue to what this could have been. Could have been maybe the reason why 185,000 people had died earlier as well. We don't know. But it was to the point of death. God sends the prophet Isaiah to go and tell him, Hezekiah, get your house in order, for you are going to die shortly. Hezekiah was struck. Oh, God, how can this be? The prophet turns around and starts walking out of the temple. So you've got the inner courts of the temple, and you've got the outer courtyard, a very big area of the temple. And he's busy walking across the outer courtyard. And Hezekiah's inside, and he turns on his side, and he cries out to God, and he says, Oh, Lord, save me. And the Spirit of God arrests the prophet halfway across the courtyard, and says, Go back. Isaiah goes back and says to Hezekiah, Your prayers have been heard. And within three days, you'll be worshipping in the temple again. You'll be well. For God has given you another 15 years of life. 
<laughs> what does Hezekiah do? Well, he wasn't doubting God, but I think he was doubting the prophet, and he was certainly doubting his own ears. So he says, so listen, prophet, what sign are you going to give me? What sign is God going to give me to, to tell me that I can count on this, that this is true? Now, Ahaz, his wicked father, had made a particular staircase in the palace, which was scientifically calculated that the sun, as it came, a shadow from the sun would fall on different steps to mark each hour. So it was like a special sundial. And so the king says, well, we all know that as time progresses, the, the shadow will go down these steps, the steps of Ahaz. Let them go back up ten steps. Let time reverse. And then I will know that God has truly spoken. And it happened. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, there is no explanation for it. No, no matter, you can't, you can't work it out. I mean, did the earth change its direction of rotation or something and then quickly whip back again the next day and start rotating in the right direction and we just didn't fly off? But we don't know how that happened, but it did. And so the king knew that God had spoken. Then Isaiah does something extraordinary. He says to his attendants, go and make a poultice of figs and place them on his boil. And again, I just marvel at this. And it's a, it's a lovely model for our day. Here is the miraculous power of God. He has proclaimed that this man will live. Within three days he'll be better. He's proclaimed he'll give him 15 years. He has done something totally supernatural to give him evidence that it is indeed God who has spoken. And then he tells them, now combine this with medicine. There's miracle and medicine combining together. You know, I don't know why we make this false dichotomy so often in our day. We say we've either got to trust God or we've got to trust antibiotics. No. They're all part of God's provision for our lives. My wife gets a little bit acid with me. Because when I get sick, I always wait before going to the doctor. I wait sometimes too darn long. Because I first want to pray. I first want to say, Lord, it's not that I won't go. But, but hey, if you choose to, you can sort me out. And if he doesn't, then I'm like a puppy. I go to the doctor and she says, she says why did you wait so long? And I say, well. <laughs> but there is a combination. And we see this actually happening here. Medicine and miracle, hand in hand, working together to raise up this wonderful king. Of Judah. Now, some say the story of Hezekiah ends badly. Some say it ends in pride. And I'll tell you why they say that. Because what happened is when the king of Babylon, another great nation, you know, the great competitor to Assyria, in fact, when they heard that the king, this wonderful king of, of Judah, had fallen sick, he sent envoys. By the time the envoys got there with their gifts and condolences, the king was healthy again. And he was obviously so pleased and so glad that he really entertained these guys and he showed them everything. He took them on the grand tour. He showed them his treasury with all the treasures. He showed them his armory with all the, all the weapons, etc. I think he was saying, God is so good. Look how he's blessed me. Not only has he restored me to health, but look at all the blessings he's poured out. But it was an act of pride. The scriptures do record that he was acting pridefully. And Isaiah the prophet comes to him and tells him, you've made a big blunder. 
And Hezekiah repents of that. He recognizes that he's made a mistake. And the prophet says to him, because in the future generations, that king now knows the wealth that this nation has. And it's only a matter of time before they come and plunder Israel. And they indeed did that. They did it just after, or sometime after, Hezekiah died at the age of 55. But Hezekiah's story doesn't end in pride. Yes, he acted unwisely. Yes, he acted pridefully, but he repented. His story is a glorious story, because listen to how the scripture describes, in 2 Kings 18, verses 5 to 7. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him, and he was successful in whatever he undertook. The Lord Jesus Christ, 700 odd years later, strode into the temple, which was the one that followed after Hezekiah. It got destroyed and rebuilt and so on, but it was still essentially the same temple, the same location and so on. And the temple in Jerusalem was standing in the time of Jesus, as you know, it was only destroyed in AD 70. Jesus strode into that temple, that Old Testament church, and what he saw enraged him. And he took a rope and knotted it and turned it into a whip and he went through that temple and he cleansed it. He chased out the money changers and the people who were profaning it. He performed what Hezekiah had done really in a, on, a, on a symbolic scale. The temple is now made of living stones not of bricks and mortar and gold. For this temple was born on the day of Pentecost, nearly 2,000 years ago, born in fire and wind, born with the very breath of God. But Jesus still strides through his temple. Wherever his church meets across the face of this earth, there he is present. Now today, as he enters his temple wherever it may be across this earth, will he find something that infuriates him like the temple of Ahaz or will he find something that pleases his heart like the temple of Hezekiah? Will he cry out in outrage you are making my temple my house a den of robbers? No, my house will be called a place of prayer. And he might just as well have added, and of power, and of proclamation. If indeed we ever hear that cry, be it here or be it any other gathering of the body of Christ, wherever you might be, then there's only one thing that's needed. We better repent fast. We better fall on our knees again and say, Oh God, have mercy on us. For this is not what you want and it's not what we want. We need to turn away. We need to reform and restore. And then we need to cry out. 
as indeed in this church we've been doing, in September of this year, it'll be nine years of crying out for revival. Nine years in September of this year that a group of people from our congregation have been praying every Monday night. Oh God, pour out your spirit again as you did on the day of Pentecost. Oh, we have tried so hard to look and reform where we can and put right where we see wrong. But we can only go that far. Now come and pour out your fire upon your church as in the days of old, as in the day of Pentecost, as indeed in the days of Hezekiah. There's a prophet by the name of Habakkuk and he prays a prayer that we've read many times at these revival prayer meetings. And I'm going to ask them to put it up on the screen and I'm going to ask you to stand and say it with me. We're going to repeat it a couple of times because let this be our cry. Let this be our heart cry on this day of Pentecost. The words before you stand, let me just read them to you. Lord, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Please, won't you stand? You, you see, the church is not the preacher, and the church is not just a group of elders or whatever. The church is us, all of us. And it's important that we align ourselves that you as part of this body cry out as strongly and as hard as your elders are crying out, Oh Lord, revive us. Send your spirit to revive us. Let's speak it out together in unison. Lord, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Say it again. Lord, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Amen.